Greetings listeners, this is Dave here. Um, I'm interrupting this broadcast to uh, make a couple announcements before we get to this episode of Season 2, Consensus Unreality. Um, This will be the first episode featuring an interview with Aiden Wachter, and I have to say this is by far one of our best and one of my favorites, so I do hope you enjoy this. Briefly, before you hop in there, uh, please check out patreon.com slash consensus unreality for bonus episodes, written content, and much more. We've been getting up to some real weird stuff over there, and um, all of our great Patreon subscribers have been getting really involved. So check that out. Enjoy the interview. Uh, Take care. Welcome to season two of Consensus Unreality. Um, we're back after a brief hiatus. Uh, we were both doing some other stuff. Life has been busy. This is the second attempt to record this. We had a, a little bit of craziness. Riddled with technical difficulties. difficulties yeah. Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining us again. We're back. Uh, we have Aiden Wachter here today who's... Uh, writer on occult and magical topics. Uh, we're going to talk about his new book, Weaving Fate, which uh, we both really loved um, and had scheduled an interview and then, you know, life happened. Life and happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had now to we're in out. season two. Totally. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to get here. Yeah. Yeah, thank Thanks you so, so much, much for, for coming, coming on. Um, so... Yeah, this is a great way to start off season two, as I think this book deals with some themes we've been kind of circling around for a while, and also kind of, you know, pushes us in a different direction, away from some of the UFO kind of stuff we were looking at for a while, as that, you know, has kind of devalued itself lately, (laughs) magically, I think. but now we'll, we'll be back talking about that eventually. But so, yeah, thanks again for coming on, Aiden. And uh, kind of wanted to start out just by asking um, what sort of your path to getting into this kind of thing was like and what some you know early influences were, where you're at now, that kind of thing. Totally. Um, this is always such a hard question because I've talked about it a lot and written about it a lot, so I always try and see yeah. if I can find an angle. Um, <laughs> For me, I got into magic because my life had gotten really strange on one side and B, because uh, I didn't really buy the kind of uh, consensus reality that I was growing up in out in the California suburbs. Um, You know, my parents didn't seem happy. Really, nobody I knew's parents seemed happy. So you had kind of all of this adult structure and this was kind of the... 70s divorce boom as well as well so everybody that you knew pretty much as parents were exploding families were exploding um and uh you know the even though i was pretty young for it it was kind of the let the 70s to me were this let down off of the 60s energy right we had this shift and then it just kind of all got dumb uh and i wasn't super into it so i kind of went hunting for weird stuff uh 
and then as I kind of started looking to it, I began realizing like, wait a second, I have experiences that are related to these things. So I had a lot of sleep paralysis as a kid. Mm. Um, I had a really intense and terrifying dream state outside of that. Um, I didn't see a lot of stuff when I was awake, but I saw enough stuff on occasion to really kind of like throw stuff in and my parents were just totally disinterested. Mm-hmm. Um, even though weirdly kind of as I got older, they were around some folks. I remember, uh, I don't know if they both did. I think they both went to a kind of a Rajneeshi run psychic development class. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. I know my mom got like a really solid, like kind of clairvoyance, far seeing past seeing thing. And it totally flipped her shit out and oh, she was like not interested at all. Yeah. And to me, that was like, come on, you finally did something cool. <laughs> you know? uh, but they were again, not interested. Um, and so I think I got into the stuff, you know, for those reasons, uh, I began looking at what was, could I find anything that made sense? And I found some of the magical stuff kind of, of course, through science fiction and fantasy, mm. uh, you know, Roger Zelazny in particular, oh, yeah. a big influence on me um, and how I practice and how I think about it. Um, and then into things like Castaneda and mm. some of the stuff that that led to some of, uh, some of the, uh, you know, there was a fair amount of publishing at that time of kind of, uh, I want to say, and I don't know the years of it, but things like Wallace Black Elk and, uh, mm. stuff like that. So you're going, okay, these are not cultures I have any ties to, but what they're talking about as kind of how to try and be in the world makes way more sense than right. what I'm seeing out here in this kind of wasteland. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the um the introduction to Weaving Fate was um really amazing because it it starts off with a uh a tone of personalization um for what I found to be a very personal book, um a book about inciting personal change. And it seemed like you had a very wide array of influences as to arriving at um writing this type of material. Was was Chaos Magic an important sort of foundational tool? Yeah, it was. Um, I So I knew a magician and I knew a witch um, that I'd met. Uh, I guess the magician who was a Thelemite uh, ended up being, you know, high up in the OTO for a while. I think he's still involved. Um, though I haven't spoken to him in many years. Um, when I was 15, and then the witch I worked at a bookstore with. Um, and so as things were going on, she was really the one that was kind of... Um, helpful you know he was kind of like well this is how you would go into ceremonial magic Mm. um but it didn't gel at that point whereas she was kind of like i'd ask her something like i'd have some weird experience and i'd read enough somewhere to go like maybe that was a men in black experience you know (laughs) i'd ask her that and she'd actually like call her mom who also was heavily involved in kind of psychical and magical and paranormal stuff um Mm. And so they were the first people that were like treating it just as normal. Mm. Right. right. Amazing. They weren't actively, I didn't see any sign that they were actively trying to produce phenomenon. They were just experiencing it. Mm. Um, yeah. And then a few years later, when I was 19, I met another Thelemite, but this guy was working in a bookstore. And he, I, at that point, I was really interested in learning. Uh, it kind of had become clear like that was, I'd had some crazy experiences that are in the book before I had met him. And uh, talking to him, I was like, oh, maybe I could use 
this magic stuff in a more structured way to get a handle on what's been going on already. Um, Cause a lot of it was not pleasant at all. Um, and among the stack of books he gave me was Lieber Nolan Psychonaut. Mm. Um, and though I'm not, I tried to read it a couple of years ago and found it really way less interesting, but you know, <laughs> 30 years on, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but uh, at that time it gave me like a kind of filter to look at Rigardi, to look at Crowley, to look at Grant. Because yeah. um, I'd been exposed to Grant already by that point. I had, uh, I think I either had Outside the Circles of Time or The Magical Revival. It was mm. just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, uh, but uh, it gave me a kind of, like I said, kind of a filter so that when I was reading Crowley, I could go, okay, he says it's for this, but do I think that based on what the actions are, that is the result one would get if you are kind of force feeding yourself that result right mm -hmm. yeah. um so that's kind of how i used chaos magic um and i think i said mentioned it in the book but so to me the, the the value of chaos magic was realizing that there were all of these different ways to do magic that have been done historically mm. some really old some really new some really uncool <laughs> uh you know like we could throw in law of attraction even for right. that right, right. Uh -huh. um uh or Napoleon Hill's kind of stuff, which is generally highly poo-pooed, though folks like Mitch Horowitz are breaking down some of those barriers. Uh -huh. yeah, um, yeah. And you could go, okay, so the issue isn't that there's a better way. There's just lots of ways. Right. Different ways work better at different times and places for some people. And that there's a reason for that. And so that through kind of taking that as the lens that I used chaos magic is you go, okay, well, what works for me? Not what do I think will work for me or should, or I've been convinced because this guy's got a good argument. What can I look at and go, okay, I'm going to try this practice for six months or a year, mm -hmm. or I'm going to do this ritual 45 times in the next two months. Um, and I'm going to see what happens. Um, uh, and really kind of, you know, to use an overused around the chaos thing, kind of taking that Jeet Kune Do approach of like, let's, experiment with it see if it's useful to me and if it isn't let's set it aside it doesn't mm -hmm. mean i'll never come back to it but it's just not functional right now mm -hmm. um so that's how chaos magic was to me but yeah i was very active in the chaos magic world um there's still some of my stuff floating around uh that i wrote as fire clown uh towards the end of my time in the iot and the beginning of founding the z cluster mm. um so yeah chaos magic was very important to me um though I definitely at this point don't consider myself a chaos magic because that's it's kind of my general thing a lot of these terms mean something really specific to yeah. a lot of people right and they don't to me so I just try not to use them because it's cleaner that way I don't get people going but <laughs> yeah yeah it's all about free belief it's like whatever <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that makes sense huh. <laughs> um yeah that's interesting what um you know Maybe this is a uh, provocative question. I don't know, but w where do you break from like uh, sort of the popular idea of chaos magic? Where where does that like hit a wall for you? I hit the wall with that in about ninety, somewhere between ninety seven and ninety nine. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, retrospectively, that was a very mm -hmm. fuzzy time in my life because there was so much going on. But um, somewhere in there, the I would say that the, 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 the really silly side of chaos magic became very prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that just never actually worked for me. Mm-hmm. I played with it. Um, now we'd had good results, good results in heavy quotes, <laughs> um, doing kind of stuff uh, rooted in Lovecraftian stuff, kind of using the pseudonomicon from Phil Hine as a guide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like I got, yeah, it just it, that, that was the only place that I kind of really played in that stuff much. Um, and what hit me was this idea that, again, kind of looking at this, I, I had a shift at some point. I'm not sure when it happened where, where I went, wait a second. I think we've been doing this since before we were technically modern humans. Mm-hmm. And so there's this really deep roots. And I think that they, they become interesting to me in my interpretation um, well before kind of the grimoire period or any of that stuff. I, I'm really interested in kind of things that get lumped together into shamanism or mm-hmm. uh, indigenous sorcery practices and things like that. Those things make more sense to me. Um, and so the, the shift for me was going, okay, I see that that's a place where you could play and have fun. And I'm all about playing and having fun with magic. But there is a to me. There's this core reality that you hit that you go. This is in the blood and it's in the bones mm. of this body that I'm in. Um, it's kind of permanently built into the neurology. Um, and for me, working closer to that line simply works better. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So that I'm makes all about. Sense. I, it's where I'm really with the chaos thing is being super experiential. Mm-hmm. Uh, is like going like no 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 if if you haven't had it work for you there's no reason to think it will work the way that person told you will hmm. uh, you know if you have reason to believe that they know what they're talking about you can probably believe that it'll work but their result and your result are likely to be extremely different yeah right yeah yeah I think that's one of the most interesting parts of Lieber Null to me is the chapter on shamanism and you could see that direct lineage straight up to like Kenneth Grant 1999 you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so like one of the books that's not very popular as far as I know uh, in Chaos Magic, though it is in print again, uh, was Nicholas Hall, who was part of that old, you know, British uh, IOT scene. And he's got a book called Chaos and Sorcery mm. that is really specifically working with sorcery as defined in Libra Null. So, you know, working with material bases. And so that was the chapter that got me. It was like the idea of like, okay, no, I can see that if I look at what I've done, as soon as material bases become involved and particularly more organic material bases, meaning not less manufactured. Mm. Um, so like plastic doesn't really do shit for me magically. It never has. Mm. Um, uh as soon as we, I kind of got into that, I went, okay, everything that I do that has a serious material base, and we're even talking things on paper, petitions, sigils, things like that, that stuff has a very different level of effect on the kind of um, walking around reality than kind of any of the mental processes that I can do around it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and not being a great visualizer may have a part of that, um, that I can't really create those uh, kind of internally generated structures that a lot of people can do and can kind of anchor thought form stuff too. Mm. For me, it's, you know, I'm going I'm to go and find stones or wood or whatever and carve that shit into, into some fashion and yeah. feed it some fluids and, and see if I can get it to wake up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And for me, that's what always works. And so that was, you know, I think that that was the biggest 
that might have retrospectively been the biggest takeaway for, from Libranol and Psychonaut for me. It was that specific thought because it did cause me to go, okay, no, this does way different things and way more effective things mm. uh, as soon as we bring the material bases into it. Yeah, right. amazing. Yeah, I've always had the most success with just uh, like sigils on paper uh, and adding, you know, some you know el- yeah, elemental aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Way more than any kind of, yeah, more uh, mind sort of bound stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, so, yeah, speaking of like sigils, um, I guess maybe like what's a good definition of a hyper sigil since that's sort of the, the basis of the, of the book here? So I kind of run off of, I don't know whether I got this directly from, from Grant Morrison, who's kind of where the term came from. I had been doing hyper-sigil work, but not having a name for it, which is weird. So I don't know whether he started right. talking about that after I stopped reading The Invisibles. I read some of the early Invisible stuff, and then life got in the way, and I never got back yeah. to it until a couple of years ago. But a friend of mine, uh, Fabeku Fatumiche, uh, he uh, taught a class on hyper sigils that I took hmm. and um, as soon as he started talking about it I was like wait a second I totally do this I had a different yeah. approach than he does but this is something that I do and that kind of dug me into going oh there's other people that are actually been writing about this shit I don't read a lot of occult stuff so hmm. uh, I definitely did up until 99 2000 somewhere in there and then I just kind of went okay I'm more interested in what I actually am doing than hearing what other people think about what they're doing mm-hmm. um, for the most part and so, uh, so hyper sigil is basically a long form narrative piece of magic done in any way. Um, so there are people who do paintings that do poetry, that do novels that, you know, do comic books like Morrison did. Um, and, uh, my approach has, I experimented some, but my approach has always been journals. Um, and that's what you know weaving fate focuses on is the black book which is this false journal but anyway so the idea is that instead of having it be like a either a single shot spell like you might do in witchcraft or a ritual for a particular focused thing where you're trying to get a car and you do one ritual and see if that works yeah. or like a practice where you're taking on a long-term practice to see how that works or how you can learn to use it which is more like what we think of as zone rights or banishing ritual type structures or mm-hmm casting circles and doing that kinds of things. Um, the hyper instead is like something where you're kind of on a very regular basis adding to the narrative storyline um, with the end goal that that storyline begins to manifest in some fashion in your life. Right. That, yeah, that's great. I'm right now I'm working on a, on a poem, like sort of doing that. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, not, following exactly what's happening in the book but sort of uh, my own take on that yeah mm-hmm. um yeah do you think i mean I, I read the invisibles for uh you know a little while ago now and i don't know if if grant morrison's spoken on it but to what extent was that like an intentional pro like is there like a is intention a necessary part of of a hyper sigil or is there like a way that it can sort of be its own thing this is kind of interesting because this ties into something that I've been writing about uh, for the book that's, that'll come out next. And I think that there's two answers to that. And one is, yeah, the intention is necessary, but there's a caveat. Um, I think now that 
one of the things that I think now is that a lot of what we do magically as far as practices and magical actions, act, this is, and by that I'm differentiating between study. Um, so reading about it is different um, than magic. Um, that stuff influences a worldview. Worldview is important and it'll influence your actions, but it's the stuff you actually do that are magic. Um, so intentional practices, intentional magical practices, part of what I think happens because I'm an animist and because I believe mm. that there's way more spirit involvement than anybody except us animist spirit driven kind of freaks uh, think and probably more than that. Um, I think what's happening is that we're raising our visibility, right? And we could think of this as being the new age way of talking about this is that we're raising our frequency as if there's some specific frequency we were trying to get to. And I don't really buy that. Mm -hmm. But what I think of is it's like turning up your brightness. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we think of that and we think of insects out in the country, right, if you've ever been out and I don't know where you guys are from, but if you've ever been out in deep forest somewhere wet in, mm -hmm. you know, the spring, you're kind of okay until you turn on a light. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and then everything comes for you and some of them want to suck your blood <laughs> right. um, and to me this is kind of what the practice of magic is in a lot of ways is we're trying to kind of consolidate and cohere and focus and brighten our light this is just language don't think that I'm talking light and again I'm not specific here it's, this is just an analogy Yeah. so we're trying to basically increase our visu visibility or increase our noticeability um and intention is really important with that. Uh, and so that's how I think that that matters in the hyper sigil. So yeah, occasionally you might have somebody who's already pretty bright in that way. And so when they are doing things, they're talking out loud, they're writing, these are the people we think of as being natural manifestors. Mm -hmm. These are the people who actually get really good results with things like law of attraction. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that, that's because it's kind of a weak technology. Um, it's not great tech. Um, but there is an aspect of it that's correct if you're already in the right place. So somebody who's been practicing magic for 20 years who goes to play with that shit tends to have really good results with it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and so it's an interesting thing. So for some people, no, you don't have to do as much work to kind of get it to start manifesting. Mm. Um, and that's where the kind of heavy intentionality, that's where the consecration work goes. That's where the regular feeding stuff goes. Um, because in, in my worldview, which is, again, I'm not trying to sell my worldview to anybody. I don't care what anybody believes. This is just based on my experience. I think that, that if you have kind of consolidated that light, which is, again, we're just using analogies, um, shit notices you and begins the things that are interested in playing with you, go, oh, yeah, we could do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or they go, okay, I would like to do that, but I'm not really interested in the one night stand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And so yeah. what's the what's the arrangement? <laughs> uh which is not necessarily transactional, it's more uh, reciprocal kind of symbiosis, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that's that that's where that intention piece becomes really critical because mm -hmm. otherwise you get really random shit. Yep. Right. Uh you get the things that you have something around that goes, "Oh yeah, I could get you a new car. All we have to do is crash this one." <laughs> you know, uh uh, is, which is, you know, are more common stories, and I think people like to discount them, but I, they do happen more to magicians than to other people. I think. Yeah, that's really funny. Wow. Yeah. It's it's interesting too. I'm not even sure what the question is here, but the relationship between 
uh, something like a hyper sigil where it's pretty focused and, and we're speaking about the intentionality setting and stuff and then sort of cultural egregores and thought forms, you know, and it, kind of the analogy of turning up the brightness it just makes me think like what what's happening when an, an egregore is formed into the world and manifests, you know, like mm-hmm. with that unintentional energy behind it, but snowballing, you know. Well, and I think that that's, it's a really interesting thing. And I think that's true. Everything from kind of political stories, cultural stories that are political in nature. <clears throat> if we think about the stories that the U S tells about it, about itself, right. Yeah. You know, we are the good guys. Everybody looks at on through kind of stuff that came out in the middle East wars, right. They hate us for our freedom. It's like, yeah, yeah. A lot of people really take that on as absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And it has its own kind of power. Um, and so there is intentionality behind it, I think, now. Right. Uh, and I think we can see that throughout empires. Like if we look at, if we probably, if we, if you were to throw folks that have a, a very sophisticated understanding of psychology and advertising, and we got to walk around Rome or something, I imagine we would see very intentional use of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think right. it's very, it's very related. Um, and one of the big things for me is, is, it also brought me into magic through the temple of psychic youth is this idea of decontrol from and deconditioning from that mm. cultural formatting um which is again consensus and reality is clearly speaking in some fashion to that uh that you go yeah this is as it is because we agree it is on some way mm-hmm. uh not necessarily that what we're seeing isn't happening, but would it be happening if we agreed on a different baseline? Mm. Uh, and I think that magic in general, my interest in it is highly tied to that. And I think that, yeah, when we're looking at egregores, like if you look at um, any extreme conspiracy theory uh, is heavily, heavily wedded to that idea. Like yeah. we begin to change our mind to the degree that we begin to see what we expect to see everywhere we look for it right Uh, which is an interesting thing ralph abraham uh who is way beyond me but is a uh chaos mathematician i don't know if he's alive now but he has who with an interest in john d among other things Hmm. um i met him through some anaki magicians that i knew uh and he said we were talking and i asked him some question that apparently was the right question to ask him i have no idea what it was this was again in my early 20s um, and in response to whatever this question was, Ralph said that what he found really interesting about chaos math and chaos science was that he didn't think there was a bottom. He didn't think that he thought anytime you could create the theoretical possibility for something to exist, you could find it. Mm-hmm. And if you could create a tool that could see deeper, you would find something deeper right. because there's no bottom which I think is really tied into a lot of thoughts that come out of hermeticism and other stuff where they're really discussing a lot of the times that, and this is directly tied into a lot of quantum stuff. I know that the gaze influences the object that it's looking upon. Right. And so right. again, we're tied into all that stuff, all of these kind of shaping influences, egregores, all that stuff shape what you expect to see, what you look for, what you notice, right. Which then changes reality. Uh, yeah, that's that relationship is so interesting. Uh, how 
magic and hermeticism is reified by quantum physics. Um, I know uh, Eric Wargo, one of our previous guests, would probably be correcting me right now because uh, he's spoken a little bit about how uh, the New Age kind of takes concepts of quantum physics and just you know runs with them or whatever. Yeah, but I, I think there is some strong, some strong uh, reification there for sure. Well, and I just think it's again, it's kind of like if we if we were to look at that law of attraction, ceremonial magic, shamanism, we could say there's relations between these things mm -hmm. that in some way they are uh, related. I think where we get really fucked up is when we try and say this is happening because of this effect, because I think it's far more complex than that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always been my take. I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The bottom's yeah. about to fall out on on that question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, something I got to thinking about uh, when you mentioned that you were kind of like already doing hypersigils when you found out about it. Do you think people have sort of always been doing that? Because you also mentioned that like magic is sort of like, you know, it's part of like our bodies almost. Do you think the people have like, you know, historical things like, is, you know, is like Dante's Divine Comedy a hypersigil? Like, where, how far back can you go? And like, at what point, you know, yeah. Well, the question is, I think, so the hypersigil is interesting because it's a specifically intentional piece of work, right, mm -hmm. done by an individual. But I think we can see that. And it's one of the things that I think is, I think human culture is tied into the same thing. Mm -hmm. If we look at the ideas of ancestral memory, um, if we look at, and, and by that I mean stuff that's intentionally passed down, so oral tradition, if we go back yeah. far enough, right? These are stories about how the world is that reinforce how the world is mm. for the people who are experiencing that. And I don't really see that as necessarily different, right? So mm. if I was raised in a culture that believed that or that had a full-on experience that the dead are constantly coming back, that you meet them in the woods, you meet them around the fire, you meet them when you're sleeping, um, that there are spirits everywhere that you are interacting with them. That this is being pointed out to you as a tiny little person. Um, you're going to live in a world that is pretty much like that. Hmm. And I'm not sure that that's totally different than the hypersigil right. concept, yeah. right. um, which is why I think it's so important to really look at our kind of baseline beliefs and determine whether they actually work for us. Because hmm. uh, usually that stuff is we're running on most of us are running on some kind of a default unless we've had either a magical reason to do it or some kind of really in-depth uh, meditation practice that really has caused us to look at all that stuff and go eventually you go oh i think yeah. this is true but i actually don't find any evidence for it so yeah <laughs> do i continue thinking it's true right mm. yeah right yeah 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 so um i guess we should switch gears back to uh getting into the the bulk of this book and and i know I've, <laughs> I've heard you spoke a little bit before um about kind of the reason why you personally may have switched gears for weaving fate um and this was sort of written during the pandemic right it was finished during the pandemic yeah. it was right. it was about 80 percent written before it yeah um for me what happened was i was uh i had written a bunch of it and uh, then switched gears and decided I would try teaching a class online mm -hmm. um, called Building the Bones that I did for about 100 people. Um, and at the, as that class was ending, um, the pandemic was really moving into people's consciousness. Um, and I already knew a lot of people who were having really hard times due to like losing jobs, losing job opportunities. 
um, folks who were uh, immunosuppressed uh, or immunocompromised who were like on it really early, like, okay, I can't afford to go do this anymore. Mm. And so I wanted to get, I knew that the book as it was, was already kind of the most useful tool set I could think of in that situation. And so we just decided to switch gears back to the book and, and away from the classes to try and get it out and get it into people's hands at a point where I thought people would have the time to read it and apply it probably at a greater rate than usual. Mm. Uh, and then to some degree, some of the end of the book and some of the end of the course kind of merged and changed each other a little bit to touch kind of specifically on this time. Um, not as being pandemic specific, but as being things that are... Uh, kind of good to keep in mind when things are going to shit which they often are so yeah yeah I th I th like you know calling it self-help is like self-help is like a scary uh term for like a book or something but i think this this book is like i've bought it as a gift for people already because i think it's like a great window into the world of magic because it's a it's a positive way for inciting change in your life you know creating processes to incite positive change um you know whether you you have a history of knowing about the occult or magic or not i think it's really really important and useful in that way and i, I found that to be pretty up uplifting context of the book um that's awesome to hear i mean that was definitely the the intent as you try and at least for me it's like i have a bunch of theory in my head or ideas about magic in my head that will probably come out in later books but right now it's kind of like trying to get actionable <laughs> actionable material out in a context that or in a form that's highly usable and so there was stuff that could have gone into that book that didn't make sense to me because it would have kind of broken the usability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. side i really wanted it to be something where you could really not know much and go and do that thing if you were willing yeah, yeah. and that's awesome and i think they're in within that too like the incantations you you wrote in there are very poetic you know and i think that the sigils are very beautiful too like even if somebody didn't really have a groundwork of, of sigiling and stuff like just mm -hmm. that as a as a book and not an occult text you know i think it's very beautiful in that way too and Thank um you. yeah for sure and um I f yeah i found yeah. the the practice of the fever stone um was one of my favorite parts of the book very moving and inspiring and I was wondering if you could elaborate on this process a little bit and its significance. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. That's the part of the book that I always can kind of, I've talked about this a bunch, but that's for anybody that does go play with the book. If you are using the corridor and the black book and not getting the results you want, do the fever stone. And that usually fixes that. <laughs> um, so the fever stone came about from, uh, trance work. Um, there's a group of entities that I work with in the other world, which is just the term that I use for not, not awaking reality. When I'm there, it's nothing like here. Uh, it's a different universe, different world in some way um, that I can walk around in half the year. Generally, I can do it in the, in the cold seasons. Um, I can't do it at all in the, in the, in the hot seasons. Um, and uh, there's a group of, spirits there that I call the sisters and uh, the sisters have been kind of my main other world connection for a long time. Uh, as far as they're the, they're usually who I interact with if I interact with somebody that I know that I've seen before. Um, 
and I brought a question to them about how to try and fix some of my shit. And uh, they took me to another chunk of the other world um, and handed me over to this tribe of what I perceive. And again, I'm trying to be as clear as possible about all this stuff all the time. So you'll get all these caveats out of me. I perceive these guys mm -hmm. as a band of hunter-gatherer, probably Neanderthal. Uh, uh, and it's like a, it's a, the part that I've dealt with is all men. Hence, I call them the brothers. They don't call themselves that. Um, but they're this hunter group that is kind of like the most extreme proto-shamanic group that I could have fallen in with, I think. Uh, mm. I don't know their language, um, but they can kind of speak into my head. Mm. Um, they don't actually make a lot of vocalizations that I've seen. The sisters do. They actually talk, but the brothers don't usually. Um, and yeah, they basically said, yeah, we can do this for you, but we need you to do preparatory work. Um, and then we're going to do stuff to you that we can't tell you what it is before we do it. So you have to just decide if you're down <laughs> blind. Um, so uh, that seemed totally legit to me in this circumstance. And uh, so they did a bunch of shit to me and they gave me practices to do. And the primary practices that they gave me is the fever stone practice in the book. So mm -hmm. I am not the author of that, except in the form that it's in the book. The mm -hmm. practice comes from the brothers. Mm -hmm. um, so with that out of the way, um, it's basically a way of kind of first, there's two aspects. And the first is the washing the stone. And the washing the stone is a great one for people to try uh, as a first into that book if they don't have much experience with magic because um, it doesn't require the consecration or any of that stuff first. You could just begin doing that piece. Um, and it's basically just deciding that some rock that you find, and it's really important that it not be special. You just go find a rock um, and you begin washing it every day in salt water. Um, and you treat it as a living object that is the manifestation of the trauma and damage and hurt that has happened to you through your entire ancestral line, which again, thinking long view is millions of years. Um, and you wash it every day and you say a little charm over it and uh, tell it what you're doing. And uh, you do that every day for at least a month. Um, and for what a lot of people find happen is that at some point that clicks on. Sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's later. Some people don't notice a lot from it, but they notice other things shift in their life. Um, of course, some people are not going to get anything from it. This is all, there's no practice. It's going to work for everybody. Um, the second piece of that deals with the idea the brothers talked about that trauma, pain, kind of hurt, whether it be physical, psychological, emotional, however you want to view it, um, sometimes is clean. It's just a clean cut. Uh, you wash it out, you bind it up, it heals up, you're fine. Um, maybe there's some limited range of motion for a little while, right? That kind of thing, the usual injury yeah. shit. It doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, and generally what happens is we come back a little stronger from most of those kinds of things, right? Bones knit back stronger. Scar tissue is stronger than your skin, that kind of thing. But there's another kind, and that's where something actually gets stuck inside the wound and festers. Yeah. Um, 
And what their theory is, if we're going to state that they have a theory, this is their experience, is that kind of in we're thinking now metaphorically in the astral world and otherworldly. So don't think that we're talking necessarily about physical events here, but the trauma occurs and for whatever reason, we don't let it go. And calcification begins to occur. And this is a little bit, how I think about it is a little bit kind of like how uh, pearls form in oysters, right? Mm. Um, we begin to try and protect ourselves from that trauma by building up this shell. And that shell is what they call the fever stone. Um, and what they're saying, what they've taught me is that the fever stone has, there's, there's a couple of issues with it. And one is that this trauma cannot be processed because it's encapsulated and it's so deeply held. Um, and so you first have to kind of get it out of the, I guess what we could call kind of the etheric body or the, the, the spirit body. Um, and the second part is that that whole process of the trauma and the encapsulation is basically like power that has been siphoned off of us magical power um, that is locked up in that structure. So this two-part thing is happening. We want to get it out of kind of the spirit body so that it's no longer doing damage. And then we want to kind of transmute it through it in an alchemical sense to free up all that power so that we actually can use it. Mm. Um, a lot of people that I've talked to uh, that are kind of get confused on there thinking that the power is the, th or that the burning thing is really just to that's kind of the release of the trauma and it's really not it's the release of the power locked up by the trauma in the stone mm. um and yeah for me that's been a huge huge hugely beneficial process um yeah. that's one of the things i can say magically i've had no downsides from hmm. um and it's weird because sometimes you'll do things that are like really seem like really minor uh and you'll be like yeah, it was like, yeah, get up from doing the work or get up the next morning. And you're like, okay, my entire world feels totally different. <laughs> and you'll do really heinous, you'll, you'll go after really heinous things that have happened to you and you don't get that same thing. And so it's very weird. It's not like the biggest trauma produces the most kind of energy suck or something, hmm. which I find really strange. I've not talked to the brothers about that. I'll probably talk to them about that this winter because hmm. this is something that has come up with a lot of folks that have been doing the practice and I'm kind of interested in their take on it. Hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Thank you for recounting that for our listeners. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I haven't I haven't done that one yet, but I'm hoping to. That's sort of like my yeah. I have some, I have some some things I'd like to kind of yeah, maybe apply that to. Yeah, it's definitely funky. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a uh, you know the thing that's the most similar to it effect wise that I found is um, the feeding your demons practice that's taught mm -hmm. by Sultram Aliani, mm -hmm. um, which is a Buddhist practice based on. Uh, Chod-based stuff from Madhuk Labron, and um, the Fever Stone to me is more. It, they're they're directed in different ways, but the feeling of them is very similar. And sometimes, mm. uh, I find that the yeah, I, I, in, in six ways I recommended the feeding your demons practice. And again, there's people that have. Uh, I think I've seen more success for magical folks 
with the, with the, the fever stone than I have with uh, feeding your demons practice though. Folks mm. that have got a, a deeper meditation background mm. seem to yeah. do pretty, pretty damn well with the feeding your demons thing. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what about uh, this other sort of aspect of telling true lies? What is uh, <laughs> what's the what, what's the deal with that? I guess is, is the so question. This is, yeah. So this is really this is this is a concept that came out for me in the '90s, um, and I was living in New Orleans, working with the folks that taught me jewelry and um, doing uh, the work that we were doing with the Z cluster, and we had a really active group of about probably variable, but maybe up to twenty people sometimes that were doing ritual work. Um, and I was kind of super dissatisfied with the term magic, um, uh, because it was so ceremonially locked in at that time, kind of like mm. at that time, witchcraft pretty much meant Wicca in the U S yeah. similar thing there. Um, and I was, uh, going to the Tulane library and doing a lot of research in there, that library, because the big university libraries, if they'll let you in are usually great places to find. Yeah. Uh, lots of kind of etymology, anthropology, things like that that you can play with. Mm. Now a lot of more of that stuff is generally available due to the internet, but back then that was not the case. Um, and so I began playing, I think, in the Oxford English Dictionary in the full version. They had a Proto-Indo-European root section, and then I found some big sections on etymology and began looking at that and then just studies on academic studies on magic to see where they kind of talked about where the words came from. And I ended up with this, I, am the, I have the sloppiest handwriting on earth and am not an organized on paper guy. I kind of have to use the computer, which I didn't have then mm. to be organized. So I just had these, you know, probably like a five subject notebook piled with notes. And from all this study and from those pile of notes, I came up with a des description of sorcery as being one who lays out lots, which is a, De dictionary definition, I believe, and, or at least it was at that time. And what I interpreted that to be was that if we think about a lot as being both like a rune, it would be the common use for that, some kind of a, uh, you know, we could think of, you know, now we could think of tarot cards, but I think they were really speaking specifically to kind of pieces of wood or bones with things written on them that you could interpret somebody's fate with. And that this was what some, this is where that term someone's lot from life comes from, right? Mm. So, so sorcery on one hand then is one who lays out lots, but it didn't say that it was one who drew lots. Uh, and I took this as kind of an idea. I said, okay, so does this mean that this is different than divination? And kind of sitting with it in my head, I went, yeah. If we're looking at sorcery, sorcery is different than divination. So instead of going, the, I'm going to go pull three runes or pull three tarot cards, and this is what it's telling me is going down, I'm going to consciously choose those things and lay them down and say, this is what's going down, right? Mm. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then through roots of the words, I believe it was coming out of Warlock. It's in the book. I can't remember for sure. I don't have the best memory for all this stuff mm. super specifically. But... Um, the term there was, a, there's all this stuff that is really linked into lying. And uh, that didn't really make sense as to why this was interlaced with power until we really look at the idea of uh, 
truth and lies as being in some way not meaning the same thing <laughs> as we think of it now, where we're thinking dishonesty, right? Uh, and what this came up for me was, I think, again, I think this was the warlock word, I'm pretty sure. Um, the definition I came up with was that the warlock was one who tells the true lies. So these two things merged for me. So I went, okay. So the laying out of lots is kind of telling true lies, right? You're going, if I can make this actually manifest through this process, then yes, I was lying when I said, this is what's coming. But after it comes, I wasn't lying. It's yeah. not true. Right. This to me is magic, right? We do yeah. all of this ritual action stating something is true that isn't currently true. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in a sense, the, the, the kind of hyper sigil processes I teach it in the book is explicitly about this, is it's really about how do I learn to tell the lies, the non-truth things that are currently not true in a way that they become true later um, in a really specific way. So one of the things that for me happened playing with this kind of stuff is it changed all of my language around magic. Mm. Uh, if I'm talking to the allies, I tell them what I want. If I'm talking to the field, I'm telling them what I have, mm. uh, even though that's not what I have now, <laughs> right? Does that make sense as a distinction? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah. the allies know what I have. I'm not involved beyond my part of the my relationship with them in how this stuff manifests. If I hand it to them, they're the ones doing it. Yeah. Um, if I'm doing it, though, I'm after what I yeah. It's, I want to be really clear about the end result, and I'm not asking. Um, mm. I'm saying this is the experience that I'm having, mm. uh, which is again, this is why the some of the people freak out about this book. That they're like, this is some super sick, <laughs> self delusional approach to uh, the secret, and I'm like. <laughs> That's not entirely wrong, but it's not <laughs> entirely right. Yeah. Yeah. I could, there's that in that process of, of writing yourself, mailing yourself the letters too, which mm -hmm. you wrote about. Yeah. And I, th I thought that was super, super interesting tool. You know, uh, how did you come upon that idea? I had, I, it's in, again, more stuff from the book. I, I knew this guy who was a magician who was as weird as I was. Uh, meaning that he had some strange practices that he'd come up with on his own. I didn't know a lot of people who really did this then. Um, the cast magicians that I knew, a lot of them were kind of, again, getting sillier and sillier. So it was kind of traditional ritual structures, but with, you know, my, my go-tos. I knew a friend who apparently had a very healthy working relationship with Ultraman. Um, <laughs> whatever, it worked for him, it did not work for me. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so this guy came up with some interesting shit. And one of the things that he had was he had a heavily sigilized old manual typewriter, really old, mm. like from the 40s. Uh, it was like the thing that you'd see William Burroughs with in pictures of him, the old yeah. royal typewriter or something. But the thing was encrusted with sigils and had candle wax all over it um, and was like in its own little shrine in his room. And uh, I got... I was over at his place one time and it's maybe the third time I was in there. I was, I like knew him enough at that point. I was like, dude, you got to tell me about the typewriter. <laughs> he said, Oh, you can use the typewriter. Uh, and I said, what do you do? He goes, you write what you want to happen on the typewriter. Uh, and it'll make it come true. And, uh, I thought this was the most awesome thing. It's like, <laughs> this is a brilliant piece of magical thinking here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, 
so I, I did this a few times on his typewriter and I got some results, but I didn't get great results from it. And, uh, but I was kind of enamored with the idea. And so the thing that I did was I began writing letters to myself and mailing them to myself as if I was somewhere else. This was especially good because at the time I was working in one city and I lived in another one. So mm. I'd mail them from the city I worked in. Mm. Uh, so they would come postmarked from somewhere else. Yeah. And I was telling myself about the cool shit that was going on in my life. And um, that worked really fucking well. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of weird the degree to which that worked incredibly fucking well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's a that's a hilarious anecdote too. It's like you want to use my time machine over there, <laughs> you know? Totally, go for it. Walk on in, see how it goes. Um, which was also, I mean, and, and this was one of the things that I got from a lot of group working too, as well as playing with other people, is that it was really that realization that methods that work for for people vary, very, a lot, very a lot. Um, and so there are things that are pretty uni universally effective. We could look at things like there are approaches to candle magic that work for most people, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that's going to be the most effective thing for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's where, again, that kind of experimental experiential approach that I definitely picked up from chaos magic and probably more than that from Jen freeze, um, uh, really feeds into that to me is it's like, take these things, figure out how they work and then kind of play with your intuition and your own stuff and to your allies and go, how do I make this thing really work? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's the, that's the biggest key to me for successful magic for anybody is like, you really, I understand the view of the kind of grimoire specialists that are, you do it the way it is. That's its own power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a very valid path. But if that's not something that you're naturally drawn to, just get really hardcore about experimentation and don't don't throw your babies out with the bathwater, but be comfortable yeah. changing the bathwater a bit and see what that does. Yeah. 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 I love that concept of like collaging, you know, magical collage and sort of tweaking it with what works for you, you know, and totally. having this sort of modulation between different practices and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. really amazing. Right. Well, and it's also thinking that, you know, a lot of this stuff is that if we think about kind of archetypal effects on us as people, right, that there's archetypes and this is a kind of, I guess, Jungian concept uh, that has roots further back. But there's this way that it kind of gets laid out that there's a set number of archetypes in the world, right, that there's the warrior, there's the lover, there's the king, there's the magician, whatever, right? Um, but if we look at kind of mass media now and we look at all of that stuff, you could say that there's now dozens and dozens more of these things, a lot of which are probably more specific to us now. So, you know, one of the things that I posted mm -hmm. the other day was like, uh, you know, uh, on Instagram was just uh, four images and it was like Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road and Riddick, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, I can't remember who else, but... Um, and it's again, it's one of those things is it's like realizing that right now it's worth looking at the archetype that you're living from a magical perspective. And this ties in very well with the weaving fate material as well mm -hmm. and going, is this actually useful to me? Yeah. It's not, is it a good one, a bad one? Is it the most powerful one? Like, 
you know, arguably the sun is the most powerful planet, but that doesn't mean you're, it's the best planet to use right now, planetary magic wise, depending on what you're after. Right. Mm. right yeah. And so it is really interesting that we can kind of use all these processes to go, okay, where are my weak points? Mm. And can I come up with some, some balancing tools yeah. uh, to bring those a little, to at least get them out of the way so that they're not uh, causing me trouble. Right. Uh, and especially right now, I think where, we're kind of balanced in between like uh it's kind of like there like at one point it was like uh if we look at like michael moorcock multiverse stuff where you've got mm -hmm. the war between order and chaos yeah. it's like the current one seems to be between like empathy and nihilism right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and yeah. how do we find our balance within there and go okay i don't want to be 100 percent on either end because neither of them look fun uh, right. but there's all of this range in between there that you okay i need to be comfortable with my emotional content so i'm not ruled by it uh, but i don't want to throw it out as having no meaning because that's also wrong um, but i also need to be tough enough to manage a very kind of fucked up moment in history uh, and we can use all this kind of technique to get there i think yeah yeah, that's yeah, that's very relevant. I feel like to uh, right now for sure. I, I think what I'm gonna do right here is about at 54 minutes if we, if we could get into maybe some of the uh, goofier stuff on the back end here maybe we could ask you about um, if you care to elaborate on this uh, fairy ring incident on Mount Shasta oh yes I can talk about that <laughs> um, yeah well, so yeah it's <laughs> kind of like a, it's thrown into the book a little bit. And, I know. Yeah, we, we, we were both like, huh, like, let's, we should ask him about that. Because we, we did, a, like, a pretty deep dive into, like, fairy kind of stuff, uh, you know, a few months ago. Yeah, so what, what was that experience? So I have had the majority of my waking eye-open, really weird experiences have happened on Mount Shasta or on the mountains around it. Um, and uh, this particular one that you guys are asking about, uh, was I was at I was camped with my girlfriend at the time I was probably 18 or 19 um, at the base of uh, Castle Crags which are these stones that stick out of the side of this mountain and below it is this castle lake and um, we were camped there it was early in the summer so we had the campground to ourselves hmm. because there was only one slot that you could pull into. All the rest of them had been in the shade, so there was still snow on the ground. Hmm. So we had this awesome location with no one. People would like pull in and be like, 
there's no way to nobody's got snow shovels with them right it's <laughs> horrible Re freeze and refreeze snow so it's yeah. like yeah we got this place for a couple weeks and uh as long as we don't move the car um and the witch that i mentioned lived there with her mother who was also super intense uh and uh <laughs> yeah such a funny day so at this point i was doing magic but in a kind of um I would say what I was doing is really actually similar to what I talk about as being dirt sorcery in six ways that I was kind of using find object found objects. I was kind of like trying to put power into them. I was figuring out what worked that way. I figured out that I could make like some protection ambulance and things like that, but I didn't have any kind of actual skill. This was like, this was the point that the raw talent got me to. And hmm. that was the extent of it. Nothing really changed from there until things got much weirder as I got started kind of working at it. Um, so this day I decided I'm going to get up to the top of this Castle Crags place and I'm going to have lunch up there. So I packed my food and retrospectively I realized I packed some offerings um, in there. Uh, I had some frankincense and some copal and some sage and uh, a few other little things. I think I had a few pieces of wood that I'd carved into little charms. Um, and I headed up around the lake and then back up, back up as well, which was really steep. And it was really covered with just the nastiest sagebrush in the world. There <laughs> were like no paths through it. <laughs> yeah. um, I was really glad I was in boots and long pants because it had been pretty cold down below. But it was just kind of like, are you willing to get lacerated by the sagebrush Jeez. long enough to kind of climb over it to get to the top? <laughs> and... Uh, for whatever reason, I was super into it. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just kind of like started climbing my way up. And I could hear these crows, uh, sometimes lots of them around me. Um, it was really hot out in the sun on this, on, on this kind of, you know, mountain, side of the hill mountain thing. And uh, I got up to like one of the first places where there was exposed rock. And I stopped there and I think I had lunch. And I, my, my best guess is that I probably made some kind of an offering there because that's kind of, I, I didn't know what I was doing back then, but I was still doing some of that. Mm. And said, so like, look, if you really don't want me to get to the top, that's too bad because I'm going to go. So it would be cool if this was a little bit easier. And I remember saying that out loud there and eating, and I still smoked back then, and so I'm sure having a cigarette. Um, and uh, finished lunch, got up, started climbing up the sagebrush again. And this went on for a while longer. I don't remember how long, but a good bit. And then I hit like a deer path. Like, okay, this is good. And at that point, I went into this place that I've experienced many times where I am like fully invested and super gung-ho and ultra-focused. So like now I'm going to the top of this thing mm -hmm. and I'm not thinking at all anymore. It's like, there's, it's just like drive to go. Uh, and I can totally remember that. So I start hauling ass along this deer trail. I'm stoked. I can hear the crows everywhere. Um, and I finally make it up to where I kind of crest the top of that ridge 
I've gone pretty far away from the crab crags I was looking at, so I'm now downhill from them a bit. But I crest the ridge, and because it's on the north side of the of the mountain there, it's a solid snowfield forever. So it's just you know pine trees, fir trees, and snow and nothing, except there is this fucking like fairy cabin like preposterous like germanic fairy cabin with the weird like upswept roof you know that's kind yeah, of, yeah. that's con i guess that's that convex mm. uh thing it's basically kind of like the witch's cabin in the woods there is a big plume of smoke coming out of it mm. it's it's way off but i can see it like it's really close which is like the weirdest thing. Like I can see all the detail. I can see that the door is open, but it's way down there. It's way down this slope. And I start running. <laughs> I'm like down the slope. I'm going to the fairy cabin. <laughs> I am totally in. And this totally clear voice in my head says, if you go, you can't come back. <laughs> and I stopped dead in my tracks. And it was really interesting because it was probably the, that might be the first time that I, again, retrospectively can think of having like a clear interaction with my allies. Cause it was my allies that said that. Um, and I was like, Oh, uh, <laughs> and I thought about it and it was, I had a strong compulsion to do it, but simultaneously I knew it was not a good idea. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, that's really weird. Yeah. Uh, and, went back out and went up to the crags and then worked my way back down. Right. Um, and then the funny part of that is uh, retrospectively. So the, I come back, things are weird. Either that night or the next day I had this crazy, my first kind of, again, really strong waking possession experience. Um, and my friend, the witch's mom, pulls up. Um, and this woman is a really interesting woman. She had deep ties to Egyptian magic. Hmm. Um, she was Apache um, and uh, had lived up there for a long time. And uh, she grabbed me. I don't, I don't think she ever really liked my girlfriend. So she didn't like any of my girlfriends, actually, retrospectively. I think that. Um, she's like, why don't you walk with me? We'll have a cigarette. And so we're walking through the woods. And she's pointing out a couple of plants and kind of their medicinal uses. And we walk around the corner and it's where she's walked us to is where you can see the crags. She goes, it is very strange up there. <laughs> and I have not told her anything. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I would agree with that. And she said, you've been up there. And I said, yeah, I went up there yesterday. And she said, well, that's very interesting because usually the crows won't let people up there. <laughs> and I was like, huh? And she's like, so you had an experience with the crows. I said, I heard the crows, but I never actually saw a crow. <laughs> she's like, that was you know, interesting. And she basically said, well, because you're like you are, which totally flummoxed me because I totally read this like, I thought what she was saying is like because I had some like native connection or something and that was a legit thing and she was just like no 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 
That's not what I'm talking about. You're like, because of how you're wired, that's why the crows let you up there and you had the experience that you had. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so that was that story. Yeah, it was super, super. That was like the first one of like, that was probably the root of what got me going. I need to learn what's going on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's funny because in the book too, it's just mentioned, you know, on page three and it's it's just putting it right out there. I love that. <laughs> you know, that was funny because um, I have a friend that I work with on my books, um, uh, Dre, and she has been kind of the primary reader of them when they're in pretty in, – I have a few people that read them and give me suggestions, but she's been the one that's most consistently said, like, this is what would really help the book from the reader side. Hmm. And there was a little bit of that stuff in there. And she's like, it would really help because we've spent enough time together for you to go a little bit in depth into some of the experiences that kind of were formative. Um, and I didn't really get why it felt right. So I did it. Um, but retrospectively, uh, even more so than in six ways, I've had a ton of people reach out, reach out and go, this part of the book was immensely beneficial to me because I've had so much weird shit happen in my life. And you bring it up even around the magical folks. And if it doesn't fit their worldview, they're just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah. I think that that's why that stuff is in there was just so that people could have the experience of going like, oh, maybe that thing that happened yeah. right. was right. more real than anybody wanted me to give it credit for. And I keep throwing yep. it away, but maybe that's not that for sure yeah 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 that's a great story too the the, the association of the yeah. the inner voice or the the voice of the allies with like the fairy experiences i feel like that's something i'm hearing more and more with like recent encounters of things in the realm of the fae and stuff i think that that's true i think that you know because i've heard it from a few people too that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that have you know really set in stone ideas of what the fairy world is and what the fae are and i'm not one of them but um there's definitely a reality there that is not the same as what a lot of people would interpret kind of other world reality one of the things that strikes me as being very similar is kind of the description of the djinn mm -hmm. um as being like an alternate set of people who are actually here mm -hmm. versus then spirits you know right, right. And so the interactions in those worlds don't abide by the same rules that magicians might think that they do. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that that's, at least for me, I think that that's why the allies show up in situations like that for me, is they'll tell me when I'm kind of going somewhere outside of my purview. Right. Uh, they don't tell me to stop, usually. Um, but they have told me, like, you need to think about that for just a second, because mm -hmm. we understand the compulsion, but... Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the best option for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? totally, yeah. Which yeah. is again what you want your allies to do. You don't want your <laughs> yeah. allies to just go along with it with whatever the fuck crazy idea you come yeah. up with. You could yeah. do that, uh, but uh, are you sure you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, you know that's yeah. it. And that's again, this is one of the things that people always tell people. How do you know they're your allies? Is because they'll tell you when you should not do something. Yeah. That you really want to do. Um, <laughs> you know. Do some people oh, yeah. have like wild allies who are like? Just just go in, man. <laughs> oh, man, that's a real thing, too. I mean, it's like one of the things that I tell people a lot is like a lot of people get kind of a compulsive att attraction to deities or spirits that are super chaotic, not in a not in a bad way, but yeah. um, 
but they're down for whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the person that they're, that, that, that they're, that's actually having to, to live through the experiences <laughs> is not necessarily down for whatever. Yeah. Right. You have to be able to set boundaries or go, you know, this was fun, but we're breaking this off and I need to find something <laughs> a little mellower. Yeah. Uh, that's a totally reasonable thing for someone to do. Yeah. Uh, that, that was really my experience, I think, of, of a lot of the kind of pseudonomic and influenced uh, mm. elder god stuff. Is like, yeah. no, 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 this is super attractive because of the weird, but right. my wife is weird enough already. I don't need to. Right. Yeah. I don't need to actually increase weirdness here. I need to increase some efficacy and some control. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the really interesting thing I I get from the Lovecraftian Kenneth Grant stuff is that it is really not about control. It's, it's more about like introducing just that, like a marriage between an other world and this world, you know, mm -hmm. and like really blurring the lines of the two, I think psychologically is. And it's interesting. We did a, we did a, an elder gods working with a group of people of various kind of um, skill levels when I was in the IOT um, that, I was involved in, but I wasn't at all the lead on the guy that ran that temple was. Um, and one of the things that came out of that that I thought that I found really interesting is that I was basically just witnessed the whole thing, even the parts that were really active with me. And I was getting kind of monologue from my allies. Mm. And that was the first time that happened in ritual where they were basically going like, don't worry about the fact that you're not having the experience these people are having, just watch. Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting because I would say half of those people had a, a pretty good time with that after and half of them really didn't. Like, And that was kind of the, for me, that was like the, okay, I, that, that, there was a lot of, um, it wasn't like grant level carnage where <laughs> it's happening in the real world. But uh, yeah. I would say that that was not good for the folks that were a little less psychologically stable yeah for um, sure at yeah. all yeah yeah that's really interesting i think that's some of the more interesting parts of grant's books too is the lodge stories you know some of the mm. just like the violence that's happening in the lodge from these like rituals and stuff you know is really well chaotic. it's pretty crazy well it's pretty crazy because i mean i think you have to read grant as half fiction of course um, yeah of course. Yeah. yeah uh you know uh yeah, but it's also that distinction between what's happening in some someone's inner experience, exactly, yeah. and what's happening in one's outer experience, and realizing that they are not necessarily the same. Mm. But he was he was useful to me because, like, coming out of my grant phase, where I was kind of done reading him overall, um, being having that kind of in the back of my head during some of these experiences in that IoT group it was really good for me to go like, okay, so I didn't get this at all, but this person really did. Mm -hmm. Like I had enough, I had enough ability to go, this person isn't making up what they're telling me, but what they're saying they experienced isn't what I saw. So they experienced something different, even though we were three feet away from each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and this was a huge kind of, um, realization. Um, and it also, kind of ties back to something that we talked about earlier, which is kind of that idea of group egregore, group yeah. culture and folklore. Mm -hmm. I believe that a lot of that stuff exists in kind of cultures or in covens or in magical groups very intentionally mm. to produce 
a similar experience set because then you can actually you have people that know what occurred mm-hmm. you know if you mm-hmm. had an you know if you were actually entirely trained within one of those groups where you actually grew up in a tribal culture uh, what happens is gonna make sense to the people that could help you yeah. uh, modern magic doesn't have a lot of that right right yeah that makes sense for sure that's interesting Hmm. yeah wow um awesome conversation yeah Um, i could i could keep spinning yeah we could keep going yeah i I just don't i don't want to keep you but i'm just i'm good for i'm good for about another 20 minutes if you want i scheduled you till then okay um yeah I, i think that is a really really interesting part of uh grant's work is 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 reifying that new mythology you know and uh sort of almost creating this like half truth uh uh ideology you know that he's like putting out there but it's it's interesting like we like us from grant we only really know or he he only really became well known about austin spare who to me is the much more interesting magician if we're talking about that kind of world because of Grant's work, but it's also pretty clear that that's synthetic. Um, That the tale of Austin Spare that we get is probably not real. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that I think that that was a joint creation. Like Spare knew what Grant wanted to hear and made up stories. This is my take. Um, And then Grant also embellished the fuck out of those stories once he was gone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, which is a really interesting thing because you go again it's a magical process yeah. right now i have worked with spare extensively as a, mm-hmm. both as an ancestor and what could be considered a form of necromancy using you know uh things that have connection to him mm-hmm. in a kind of reliquary shrine and working with him and he's a potent motherfucker now um <laughs> and so i believe he was before um yeah but uh yeah, he's really interesting because, again, I thank Kenneth primarily for introducing me to Spare. But yeah, uh, yeah. So that realization that he was trying to do a particular thing, Grant was. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was attempting to, uh, and, and and I think he was very successful. If we look at the world now, I yeah. don't think that minus <laughs> the magical work that's been done around all that stuff, it would have become the degree of the pop culture phenomenon that it has. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yep. I don't think that there would be elder gods on Netflix all the time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't yeah. think we would see that shit to the degree we do if it wasn't for Grant's work. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think of uh, the? Have you, have you seen like the, the newest Twin Peaks? You know, season. No, I haven't. Yeah, yeah. that's just it's just Grant all the way down almost. Right. It's really it's incredible. Yeah, I'll like, have to watch it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've not heard that, but I I I loved the first season when it came out. The first yeah. episode once when it came out. Yeah, you know, Grant was really good. Was good for me because it made me dig into somebody's writing in a really aggressive way. Yeah, I was like, yeah. there's shit in here that makes sense, and there's shit in here that doesn't. Um, and I wanted to understand kind of his approach mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't get there uh, I'll send you guys something that I wrote uh, yeah. a million years ago that is basically like a little three page parody of Grant that uh, <laughs> yeah. I wrote that I was really stoked Must to hear that. that yeah and that uh, Nima who knew him actually sent it to him or oh, no, no. She, she said she read it to him over the phone <laughs> And that yeah. he was basically falling out of his chair laughing. So I apparently did good. That's great. I didn't know that Kenneth really had a sense of humor, but apparently he did. That's awesome. Um, 
But yeah, he was really good because he did make me really dive in. And then I hit a, this point where I went, this isn't relevant to what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the point where I think I really began developing my own work uh, as just a wholesale thing. Like, okay, I'm not bothering with hmm. Crowley. I'm not bothering with Grant. I'm not bothering with the Golden Dawn. I'm not bothering with anything that doesn't just grab me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, probably you know, Freeze became the, the primary influence for a long time. And then uh, right before the end of my kind of public adult life, I, I shut that down for about 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some communication with uh, Andrew Chumbly just a little bit, but I got a hold of the Azuesha, Katub, and God, what else did I get? I want to say there was one other book by him out at that time. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and uh, came across Nigel Jackson's Call of the Horned Piper mm. and Masks of Misrule. Um, and so those were like all kind of pulled me into this world of uh, British traditional witchcraft, mm. which to me was very influenced by Spare aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, so those are kind of like lasting influences, probably in part because there were some of the last occult books I ever looked at until about 2010, 2011. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very interesting thing. So that's one of the things that I think gets kind of, uh, it totally was, a, yeah, I think that, that was where the aesthetic that ended up in my jewelry and the aesthetic that ended up in my sigil work in the books and stuff really kind of occurred from being you know doing 30 years of sigil work based on spare but then specifically yeah. the aesthetics that kicked up out of jackson probably mm. Uh, mm. yeah i don't i'm not familiar with that so i have to check those out they were yeah, yeah they're probably definitely. horribly expensive right now because the company yeah. that produced them went out of business but um uh, uh they're probably available in pdf form yeah hopefully jackson for a while at least kind of denounced all of his witchcraft stuff and became involved with uh, kind of the traditionalism, religious traditionalism and Sufism stuff. Hmm. But he did recently release a new tarot deck. So I'm kind of hoping that he's uh, chilled out a bit about that. And, yeah. we'll, hmm. and now that Capital Bound's down, down, we'll get somebody to republish those books because they're quite beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wrote that down. I have to I have to find a PDF of that. But that's a yeah, yeah, th- very interesting stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a. I think that's a good way to end up too because getting back to your, your break from that stuff, it does kind of seem like Kenneth Grant is kind of the end of the line for a certain type of writing. Uh, <laughs> I think the reason why I like it so much is because I really enjoy reading about history stuff and he's creating this sort of alternate history timeline. Right. You know, Absolutely. So well, enjoyable. And that, well, and I think that that's a really brilliant move. And I think it's one of the things that gets lost on the academic side here sometimes um, mm-hmm. is there's something about like so, so there's there's interesting stuff. So like if we look at like we'll, we'll use Nigel Jackson in particular, and I know that there's PDFs of some of his stuff floating around, so people could find it if they wanted it. Yeah. Um, he's kind of taken this really vehemently anti-Christian look at witchcraft um, that is to me really kind of in line with. Uh, uh, Leland's Aradia, which is my favorite book on witchcraft, um, and uh, really brings out this kind of like super liminal, liminal 
super what now gets viewed as kind of hedge riding uh really deeply invested in the other world take on witchcraft that it's not that it didn't exist some before that but he kind of produced the package that worked it it had the stories it had the kind of blood and guts edge to it it had kind of a vehemence to it uh and it had no uh no capitulation to acceptability of his thought process, which is, I think, the thing that I love about him and that I see in Grant. And I think that Grant opened this up. This exists in, in Chumbly definitely too, you know. Um, uh, we're not talking about why you should believe me, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, we're saying this is what I've experienced and I'm speaking it as truth. Yep. yep. And I think that that's really important because we're so far from that world, most of us. Mm-hmm. And so anything we can kind of get to help us in uh, to kind of break off these kind of shackles of materialism and uh, kind of dualist religion and all that stuff are very helpful. And so that immersive aspect, I think that I, you know, I got a lot of benefit out of, you know, even urban fantasy like Charles DeLint, Mm -hmm. even as a practitioner and not having those experiences be the same at all. It was still beneficial because this begins to counter a lot of story. You get to spend a couple hours not right in the, in the dominant paradigm you get to shift right. into a different yeah. explanation of how the world works yep. yeah i found yeah sci-fi and fantasy more fantasy as as a a really helpful way to think about uh yeah how how you might start to move away from the the everyday yeah yeah i think it's a useful thing and, I, and, and so i think that um it's again i think that that's where one of the, the another thing that i get a lot is i got a letter just a couple of days ago from somebody going like i think they were listening to the glitch bottle podcast and they were like this was such a relief to have somebody be completely unapologetically <laughs> a freak about this shit like you didn't like really defer to any of the academia or yeah, any of that yeah. stuff and they're just comfortable saying like yeah crazy ass shit happens it really does yes it's happening internally for the most part but it produces effects in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's like, and I've seen a lot of physical stuff. I've seen a lot of people who can throw shit around with their minds. Mm-hmm. I, I knew two guys that could like pick a particular book off the shelf and drop it on the ground. And they couldn't fly it to their desk or something. <laughs> yeah. But they were able to do that shit. And I saw that shit when I was 100% there and on multiple occasions, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people make people fall down. That's <laughs> I've definitely seen that. Yeah, so you go, we're, we're, we have more power than we think we have, For and sure. to me, that's the base interest in magic. Mm. Yep. Is uh, this acquisition of uh, levels of power that the cultures we're in would prefer we did not think we had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Um, I think that's a a great place to yeah, it's an awesome let you go too. To, but yeah. wow, that was a an amazing interview, and we appreciate yeah. you coming on and speaking with us so much. No, thank yeah. you for having me. It's a total pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. So what all led right. you guys all into yeah. all this stuff? I'll, I'll, I'll turn the, the table <laughs> for a second if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, Man, it's funny. I don't know. Probably goofy stuff on History Channel, I think. Like, uh, <laughs> right on. You know, like the, I think probably the first, but I mean, you know, weird experiences too, of course. Um, But I think the first kind of thing I, I picked up was probably Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And I love the sort of like historical mystery, you know, is really what, what drew me in. And, but then from there, you know, you get 
into Crowley and all that stuff and it just builds and builds and builds and there's always another take on it you know in another direction and that's where we're at but the you know the practicality stuff is is becoming really interesting and as you get older you know like inciting positive change in your life through these rituals is is super important so yeah Yeah. Uh, I got into this sort of thing sort of three-prongedly uh it's very connected to my writing and poetry practice uh that's very much working with i'm not actually sure who it is so it's kind of totally yeah um some strange sort of visionary and like weird experiences connected to some health stuff when i was a kid sort of put me into i don't know yeah i'm not sure a lot of it's just kind of unknown but totally and the the thing that kind of brought me into it like when i was older like a middle teenager was like ufos and Mm -hmm. thinking of kind of not knowing it but thinking of magic through the lens of like u- ufology and mm-hmm. that kind of inevitably leads you back to you know the much older and more ingrained magic tradition i think if you're you know uh if you really follow it i mean you can obviously just think there's like you know literal aliens but yeah <laughs> you know yeah yeah yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, for me, that was a, it was a mix, too. It's like I said, you know, I had experiences that I perceived as men in black experiences, mm-hmm. um, things like that. There wasn't any linkage between the two, I think, maybe. But again, then when I brought that up to um, that witch, her mom yeah. had multiple men in black experiences through the years. Yeah. And yeah. So that was also one of those things where like, okay, I'm not sure I had the same experience she did. Right. But you have someone validating who weird yeah. as fuck, but was entirely sane as far as i was concerned you know yeah wow next time next time we have you on we're gonna have to delve deep into the the significance of the men in black archetype (laughs) it's it's super weird super weird yeah it's definitely not a specialty of mine but i did have that i did have that one experience and it was like that was freaky yeah yeah and and the way that ties in with like sleep paralysis visions and the archetype my mom who is the most uh what's the word materialist person i know just like has no interest in any of this but who i feel like also has some kind of like i don't know some uh <laughs> she'll like say something will happen then it'll happen like that kind of thing um but she doesn't believe any of it anyway she like had this first sleep paralysis and she was like i saw this guy standing in the corner with a hat, hat and man. she had no but and like that's just like but people see that and no one like you know like Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's super interesting. Like well, what? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's again. I think that's one of the things here that, to me, is the big thing about magic is, and it's why I'll kind of, it's why I have, uh, I, I'll give great credit to academia and great credit to tradition, mm-hmm. but uh, they are the two biggest things that keep people from accepting their own experiences as real. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to. Uh, I'll be polite about them, but never give them a whole lot of credence just in public because it's like, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Right. What you think, sure. what you think someone experienced and what, you know, what they told you they experienced is not the same as having that as a consistent thing go on for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, cause yeah. there's a point where it changes and you go, okay, the world is not how I think it is. <laughs> right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not you like lean into, uh, lean into it, I guess, or, yep. or, or if you, 
are sort of hounded by it. It's kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't know which, uh, which is better, you know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was a great pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much um, again. To our listeners, uh, do check out Weaving Fate, which is the most recent yeah. book, Weaving Fate, Hyper Sigils, Changing the Past and Telling True Lies. Um, yeah. Also, Six Ways is fairly recent as well. About um, two years old, two and a half years. Yep, yeah. and and uh, these books can be found at generally online. There mm-hmm. are some brick and mortar stores that carry them, but generally you'll yeah. be able to find them online. Any preference as to where to direct people? It doesn't to... affect us. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. great. So grab them where you can. Yeah. Yeah, get these yep. books. Really important stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Great way to spend a Sunday for me and Ben. Totally. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You'll do well.